Good morning and good afternoon, everyone. Here's week three of The Personalized. This episode is with Ian Humphrey, who uh, runs and writes the Under the Shroud podcast. He is a really funny guy. I know I said about a lot of guests, but um, there's a few few dark and gritty comedy uh, people that I work with. Him and Persephone are being some of the top two. And um, Ian's Ian's writing is, is amazing, and his acting is is beyond. I really really love his Under the Shroud podcast. And if you haven't listened to it, I, I would suggest you listen to it. We do get in a few spoilers for this episode, so be wary of that when you start listening. And one more thing I need to update you on is there is a bit in this episode. Again, these were recorded about late 2019, early 2020 when the pandemic was still happening. Um, there's a bit, I think, from my end about a mask that obviously were, were not the uh, correct terms and correct um, correct usage for, for the discussion we were talking about for the mask bit. So, But it was too good not to remove. So again, I uh, apologize. And I really do hope you enjoy Personalized with Ian Humphrey. So obviously, this is a subject that that needs to be discussed right off the bat. This is something um, it's critical to not just you and me, but the world right now. How is the how is the coronavirus affecting you and your um, not just your your podcast process, but your outside life and your 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 uh, whatever you're doing for your your job right now as well? Um, well, I work in the service industry at a uh, coffee shop, Epoch Coffee. Welcome to the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. The end is nigh. Um, <laughs> And we, I'm very, very, right. <laughs> um, I'm very fortunate to work for a company that um, that has gone to an extraordinary lengths to make sure that we're all still employed uh, for as long as they can stay open, which is awesome. Uh, but I don't know. I was one of the lucky ones in that, um, in two ways, sort of. The, the first being that I have a good friend who has family in China who's been watching this thing for much, much longer than the bulk of folks in the States have been watching it. Um, So he was keying me into what was going on early on. And that was nice because I managed to psychologically wrap my head around it before it actually jumped off. Um, The other big way I was fortunate is just that I've kind of always assumed that something like this was going to happen. Um, and I've had uh, I was went through a pretty intense seasonal depression this year um, that just was stunting my uh, productivity, and in a weird sort of way, this whole thing actually getting going, you know, some sort of major collapse that looks like it's you know uh, rife for catharsis, right? Was was kind of nice like I, I i'm obviously not happy about what's going on here but with the situation that the planet's in this is this was just going to happen in one way or another we were going to start um having to cut down on the luxuries of the 21st century and there's a piece of me that's pleased that like all right let's get the ball rolling let's figure out what's going to happen next um i mean i've 
I have I had a little bit of money stocked away for uh, financing my show that me and my sound guy have agreed should now go towards making sure I can be alive. Um, so I'm I'm doing okay financially, just trying to put together more funds for him. Um, at the moment, I've got a job, but the rumors I'm hearing say that by Monday at the very latest, I'll probably be out of one. I'll be in the same boat as the rest of the folks hoping for that thousand dollar check and uh and uh fucking what's called uh unemployment mm-hmm. i'm sorry to but hear the that, immediate no nah, nah, dude I, I, it's what it is this is gonna this period was gonna happen and compared to several other apocalypse scenarios getting started with this really isn't that bad um it's awful but it's not it could be so fucking much worse um, for the first thing that really snaps everybody into gear. Um, and that's how I'm trying to think about it. That and just maintaining a constant sense of positivity in the workplace and with everybody I meet, um, having these really lovely encounters. Like today I went to the grocery store and there was a cop standing at the grocery store door. And historically I haven't always had the best relationships with uh, law enforcement, but it was nice to have a moment where I could, you know, look him in the eye and be like, Hey man, Thanks for looking out for us. And he looked me in the eye. I was like, yeah, brother, thanks for being cool about everything. I can't remember. His phrasing was something along that. And um, it was just a nice interaction that's felt honest and pure and spoke to like a very true boiled down sort of motivation that you don't always find with strangers, you know, or talking to the grocery store clerk about like I was. I bought 11 packs of cigarettes um, and not at carton price. I just was like, well, I think this is going to be the time to really strap down on my addiction, my last remaining serious vice. And uh, and I ended up talking with the guy, with the clerk about his drill sergeant who took away his smokes when he was in basic. And I'm like, that's an interesting story. We wouldn't have had this conversation. Um, anyway, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm finding that this is – that I'm having conversations that I would never have had otherwise and that I'm enjoying every goddamn one of them. Right. So, um, <clears throat> this is, I guess really, I don't want to leave. The, well, I'm really such a, um, so, uh, overall was your shopping experience good today? You think, or, uh, cause I, I have a funny reason why I brought that up actually. Um, I would, it sounds like you had a more interesting trip than I did. Um, <laughs> I would say that, yeah, it was pretty <laughs> positive. Um, I was really pleased with the number of, basic necessities that were available that I really <laughs> didn't think were going to be. Um, and yeah, no, it was, you know, I, I, uh. I, I, there were several, there was a paranoid air that wasn't great. And a couple of times when people like, when I like almost ran my cart into somebody, cause everybody's like looking every direction at once and not at what's in front of them. And I managed to carry off I think all of those interactions with like, at the very least, a, like a nod and a wave, if not like a little joke that kind of lightened the air on both sides. And that was, you know, it was weird, but nobody pulled a gun. <laughs> yeah. You're telling me I went, I had to go uh, get some groceries today for the first time since the outbreak happened actually. And like, uh, I went to like a, a big lots and Aldi and man, I mean, there were things, everything seemed stocked except for like, you know, the obvious hand sanitizer and towels and shit, you know, paper towels and napkins and, you know, the shit that actually people for some reason want. But like, the thing that bothered me the most was, um, <clears throat> no one seemed, it, I mean, there was people that came in with gloves and the people that came in with masks and stuff and, and my ass didn't, I'm gonna be honest, I didn't, 
<laughs> um, well, I also like my thing. My my idea in that was like, um, I'm like, if I go in with a mask, right? I assume mm-hmm. people would probably think this guy may either be really paranoid or actually be sick of a sort. And right, I didn't want to make anyone else feel uncomfortable having to like stand in the line with me or some shit, you know? Right? Mm-hmm. But I swear to God. Everyone there wanted to like get up and sell my cologne as close as everyone wanted to be to each other around the grocery store. I don't understand why. I feel like a guy walked up to me. Yeah, he. I promise you, he he looks like he had the rings around his eyes. I mean, maybe he's just been so stressed out he hasn't been sleeping right. But he looked like death, and he would just he just walk. I'm I'm the only one in the the aisle. I'm looking at soap or some shit, and he just (laughs) he walks up. He sees me, and it seems like he walks. He wants to look at the same soap bar I'm looking at, so he gets closer to me and i'm like slowly like sidestepping not in a rude way but you know in a way to let them know you know dude like we got some shit going on right now i don't want to like breathe down your <laughs> neck and see what the fuck you've been doing today yeah yeah oh, oh actually i do have a thing on that i do have a thing on that which is just that i mean they, there is a weird air of people who are just like more desperate for human connection than they ever have been um and i think that, that that's a fair way at least at related too. to yeah, people just like really, really want company right now, um, in a way that's kind of fucking fascinating. Um, as somebody who like, you know, I'm worried about what's gonna happen, but I'm also kind of psyched because the idea of several weeks off work to just bury my head in writing and you know, that sounds awesome to me. Um, Feels <laughs> the idea, yeah, right. Like the idea of like, oh, I don't have to go like. I can't go to work. I need to go to work to make money. I'm grabbing every shift I possibly can. But the idea that, oh, well, that's just going to dry up and go away. And at least I've got enough money saved up to make it through a month or two. And and I have to be indoors. I mean, it seems like all the best parts of prison, um, which with the life I've led, I've f- fantasized about prison a time or two. I'm like, yeah, the group showering scenario doesn't sound so great. And the food sounds <laughs> awful. But um, but if they'd let me get a pen and paper, I think it'd be worth it. I think it'd be worth it. Um, so you know, with with all that being said, um, I, and I don't I don't mean to dare, air I guess air dirty laundry anyway. But um, last time me and you had spoke, uh, or actually even uh, had a, a, a I guess a sort of a long drawn out conversation sometime last year, uh, early fall before we had started the production on one bad night and um. You didn't seem to be in such a you know a, a good place. Things were things were upside down for you as then as they are for me now. Um, yeah. So um, you know I don't know if there's things you you don't have to talk about, but you know um, I I'm I'm assuming you're doing better now. You seem better. You seem happier when we talk and such. Yeah. Yeah. No. I'm. It's been an up and down with me uh, productivity wise for 2020. Um, what you're referring to, I'd rather not talk about. Um, that's fun. Yeah. Uh, it, it's not a big thing. It's just, it's just not a big thing. Um, but yeah, it's been an up and down for me. Uh, I had some medical issues earlier in the year that actually ended up being again, sort of fortuitous timing. I've had, I've struggled a lot with ear, 
uh, damage and trauma um, in a, a different sort of way than people generally mean. A lot of times I'll end up in a conversation where I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm, I got trouble with hearing people like, yeah, man, I've been to too many shows or I'm a drummer. I'm like, yeah, that, that, those are very real traumas to your ears. Uh, but mm-hmm. I've had both of mine removed on multiple occasions to scrape out cysts that were inside my oh, head, God, dude. which is like a slightly different kind of trauma. <laughs> Jesus. Um, so, but anyway, and, and this is, it's just been my cross to bear since I was a little kid. It's just, I've always had hearing trouble. I'm always going to have hearing trouble. Right. Th- there are worse problems in this world. Uh, but this last I'm sorry January, to hear that. I no struggled. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's it's it is what it is, you know. It's it's like I said, it's my right. cross to bear. But I got kind of lucky that it spiked in January, and I ended up going jumping through a whole bunch of hoops to get them checked out and cleaned out, and took a bunch of went through a bunch of rounds of antibiotics to get a whole bunch of infections killed, and now my ears are better than they've been in years. So. If I'm going to be stuck with this bullshit and we don't know what's going to happen with the entire health uh, saga that we're entering, then, yeah, this is this is as good a time as I could hope for. Um, But it did it did do weird things to my productivity where I for the month of January, I was able to write like a fucking fiend and burn out this wonderful material. And then that just like dried up for some ungodly reason. Um. So it's weird. I'm happier than I've been in quite a while, but I also am aware that I'm about to hent- enter uh, one of those sort of writer hot spots where – I don't know if hot spots the word, sort of danger zones where it's like, oh, well, I've been writing a bit here and there, but I haven't really dug in in a mm-hmm. while. And I'm about to have to break through that initial problem where it's like I-, I-, I still can type well, but I'm not exactly sure where – like my my grasp of the language isn't the same as when you spend two to three hours at the keyboard every single day. And I'm going to have to break through that to find this next project I'm working on. Um, I'm not terribly concerned about it. It's just something that I'm aware of. Right. Um, so I, God, there's some, there's so much to, to, to break down and, and discuss in that. But I guess the first thing I do want to ask is with you having, um, you know, like you said, this, this uh, ear, ear uh i guess ear breakdown i would say i mean you know the ear issue you've had trauma. all your life does, how what brought you in yeah wh- there you go trauma. what brought you into podcasting how did you go from ear trauma to actually having to write something you have to listen to you know it's just um <laughs> you know well first off i should acknowledge <laughs> that i am not the sound engineer on any project i've right. made thus far um and there's a very good reason for that uh i just don't know what other people are catching. And I'm just aware that I'm going to be missing shit that other people are going to catch. Um, but okay. So there's a couple different sort of steps in this adventure, things that mm-hmm. seem coincidental, but lead inexorably towards my current, uh, my current passion. Um, when I was a little kid, uh, my dad was a big fan of Prairie Home Companions, specifically Lake Wobegon. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Never heard of that. Actually. Oh my God. It's, I really recommend is it a radio up, play or uh, probably it... on YouTube. It kind of. So it was a variety show that this guy, Garrison Keeler, um, who's in a little bit of trouble right now, uh, politically speaking. I have very purposefully not learned a lot about it because, He's because I don't want to know. 
Yeah, yeah, it's one of those things. And he was he was the first writer I was aware of by name. And I thought to myself, that's that's a guy that that guy exemplifies writing to me. And I'm talking ages like eight or seven or nine or something. Um, and the, the the big show, uh, Prairie Home Companion, is a variety show. There's a, there's fairly religious themes to it. Um, he's hyper liberal, so it's not conservative religion, but there's a lot of Christian themes. There's a lot of, um, Christian folk music. Um, it's just a, it's a, it's a very Midwestern religious show. And throughout it, there are different skits that they do, which fall into the category of radio drama. Um, some of them are just, are just super funny. Some of them are more dramatic, but it tends to be just sort of this lively show. Um, and he brings on bands and whatever, but then the sort of key point of the whole thing is this uh, monologue series that he does every single episode or did every single episode uh, stories from Lake Wobegon, which is this little town in Minnesota on a little lake called Lake Wobegon. And, you know, all the, what is it? All the Catholics drive Chevys and all the Lutherans drive Fords. And, you know, they, it's tales of like flag day or one where he throws a tomato at his sister's ass and little things like that. And it's super slow paced, um, incredibly literate while also being very, um, local and small town and relatable. Um, oftentimes, you know, roll, roll in your chair, laughing, oftentimes break down listening weeping with the sadness or the joy of it it's just a really poetic thing i can't recommend um his stuff highly enough particularly there's one if you just google lake wobegon prophet um there's a, a video on youtube that changed the way i looked at everything in the world and he's always been my hero um ironic because he is arguably like the cleanest longest running most uh prolific clean, clean, clean writer I'm aware of. And, um, and he's, and I write trash essentially. Uh, <laughs> I try to hold to his same sort of motif of like laughs and tears alongside of each other and stories of the little guy. But, uh, if you were, if you were to take it surface level, my work and his work, there would be almost no comparison. Um, that is, so there was that, and that was a huge had a huge profound effect on me. Um, many many years later, I was doing um, I was doing the Foley guy for a production of Twelve Angry Men, um, as directed by one of my teachers in high school. I went to a theater high school, um, same program as Tupac and uh, Jada Pinkett Smith. Oddly enough. Um, <laughs> But anyway, my th one of my favorite theater teachers from that and another sort of hero of mine directed this staged reading of 12 Angry Men. And he was hired to do a staged reading, but he wanted to make it more fun. So he did it as if it was a radio show. And I had a little door and I had a pair of shoes and I had a bell or whatever the fuck. And it occurred to me that this was a wonderful, inexpensive way to tell stories with it. my My focus initially was on uh, special effects that I could have, I could tell any fucking story I wanted. I could do Lord of the Rings epic, or I could do corn black small. And it would, it was all feasible as long as it was, you sold it with the writing and the sound and the acting. Um, 
at that point, I don't think I'd even heard the the term podcast yet. Um, that would have been 13 years ago, about maybe 12. Um, and I was not technologically up to date in those days. Um, so yeah, so that was another big step. And then not long after that, um, I ended up doing a quasi podcast. We never had an RSS feed. Somehow we just like really screwed the pooch on that, but we did a show called lunar state, which was, um, my version of Lake Wobegon. Uh, Can people set- still find that to this day or? I don't think so. I'm pretty sure that's long gone. Um, Lord knows that I've gone through enough financial trouble between that and now that it's, um, yeah, that's gotta be long gone. That said, I recently came across all the old, um, writing from it and I'm very seriously considering, uh, going back and editing it together, you know, basically just chopping out the shit that I can't even imagine looking at because it's so garbage in retrospect. Um, but yeah, it, I'm thinking about doing something with that old material now. And then that did not work out uh, for very long. It was a wonderful project when it got started and then just didn't pan out. And, um, and then a couple of years ago, I was writing a lot of prose, um, all of it set in what I now call the Shroud universe. Um but I was having a lot of trouble getting um, any publishers to look at it. I didn't really like playing the submit, submit, submit game. Yeah, it, it does get annoying real quick. Yeah, and and I really – I have nothing but admiration for folks who can really stick it through. But I needed another leg up. I wasn't comfortable just be. I wasn't comfortable not having had anything published and then just asking somebody to give a shit about what I was writing. So it made more sense to me to just figure out a way to self-publish something in a very easy, accessible format. Um, One of my biggest problems with self-publishing right now is that there's this – it seems like one of the phases is you write a book or a series of short stories or whatever – and you put it out into the world and then you just beg people to read it for free, to review it, or even just to buy it at all for free. And when there's no value assigned to prose, it just kind of floats away for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't feel like it really exists. And it, right. it seems like I immediately assume that it's garbage. And of course that's not true. Of course there's tons of people out there who have or just need readers – to make the next step in their career or just want readers because they want to be read and their work could be incredible. And I wouldn't know because there's this just hiccup mentally for me and many others. Whereas with podcasting, I don't expect to pay for it. I listen to it under the assumption that these people have gone to the work and the time to get it out there. And I'll know within five minutes, whether they took it seriously or not. And we'll go from there. And then ideally from, from this point forward, I would, you know, We'll be pushing the podcast, but also whatever prose that I write, I'll have something of an audience to pitch my prose to. You know, it's different to say like, hey, throw me a dollar and you can read one of my short stories or a couple bucks to finance my novel or whatever. You already know my work. You already trust my work. Even if nobody says yes, I at least will have the ex- feel comfortable asking them to because we have a relationship. There's, there's a bedrock of uh, material to rest my head on. I will say this. Um, 
and uh, not to, I guess, not, or toot your own horn or however <laughs> for this. Uh, a friend of mine recently and I, we were we're working on we're working on a project, and um, mm-hmm. you know, we had discussed different ways of you know financial stuff, and then one uh, he had brought up, um, you know, we had talked about Patreon, discussed just little things like that, and out of nowhere, he was like, you know, who does the best at Patreon? And I'm like, who? And he's like, Ian from Under the Shroud. <laughs> the way he does his Patreon, um, the things he gives, the bonuses, the the podcast you do for the Patreon itself, um, you know, he he gave it high praise and said, you know, this is the so far it's been a, it's it's been one of the best methods he's seen on a Patreon before. Well, thank you, and um, thank him. I or thank them. I, I, I'm, I have a feeling yeah, I might him. know who you're talking. It's him. About. <laughs> okay, um, but yeah, that's 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 super kind, and that was a lot of where the. The, the initial idea for Under the Shroud came from crowdfunding and how to figure out how to do that. And I will be the first one to admit that I screwed the pooch for a really long time on Patreon. And I, you know, got some supporters who then left. And I totally get why they did because I just didn't really know what to do with crowdfunding. Like, I just didn't. I had these ideas of like, Oh, this would be a, like for a while. I uh, there's we even had an episode out that I just recently deleted, where I was repping a newspaper set in the universe that I would write on a weekly basis, and I was like, ah, oh, maybe I'll write it biweekly, and ah, oh, maybe I'll write it monthly, and then it was just like this is too fucking hard. It was like trying to write six pieces of flash fiction a week on top of making the show and developing the project it just wasn't working. Um, and it was only really within the last couple of months that I was able to settle on a campaign that that is relatively manageable, easy to manage and accomplish, but also um, I feel like gives a consistent benefit to, uh, to folks who want to sign up. That aside, the real fun thing about our Patreon, and I am going to totally brag about this one, and the, the idea that took Under the Shroud from like an inkling to this is the show I want to make was the idea of a main character whose primary flaw is drug addiction, um, which is something that I have some experience with myself, and taking this weirdly honest yet deceptive route of having the character beg people to join the Patreon on on the show to finance his drug habit. And I just... (laughs) (laughs) And that was what, like, that was the moment when I was lying in bed with my girlfriend and I was just like, fuck, I got to go do this thing right now. Like, I just got to get out of bed and make this thing happen. And I wrote the entire first episode pretty much immediately um, just because I I knew who this guy was. Um, I knew he was somebody who, you know, had a a good heart. Um, It was something that I'd been struggling with my writing at that time was like, okay, so I need this guy to be, you know, essentially a good person. Um, I tend to write people who are just driven by selfish motivations but this guy wanted to be better than he was and he had a way to mask wanting to be a better person and he could mask uh the the vulnerability of virtue behind greed and that just made sense to me with uh with this character and i knew how he sounded pretty quickly um i knew that i would be delivering the voice and it just it just kind of worked together very easily yeah you do really good and you know we've had you know we've had corin on um the three husk my show and it's mm-hmm. it's still to this day one of my favorite episodes um, <laughs> of just the, the the chaos that went down from the beginning to end on that yeah yeah um i'm sorry go ahead 
No, I was just going to say that. I remember in the rec- when we were getting ready to record with that, um, I think I'd caught a little bit of a boozer buzz uh, leading up to it. Or like we were having a little bit of trouble getting the recording set up or whatever. And um, mm-hmm. and that was during the time that I kind of got my buzz and I'd had a long day at work. And then by the time that we kicked off, I was sort of like just jumping and ready to go. <laughs> and I remember – I just remember like that the energy was like – palpable from the the moment we started that we were like we were gonna have a blast doing this and try to like make up as much weird shit as possible it's the closest i've come to doing it to uh to the one of the greatest uh fiction podcasts of all time um hello from the magic tavern hello from Magic tavern was one of the one of the sort of influencers for me it's um but it well it brought me into understand to getting off just my little radio show i like to listen to shout out the bonfire and um I fell fell into with Hello from the Magic Tavern for a bit, and then somewhere along the line, I found We're Alive, and then after We're Alive, I found Boom, and then from there, I mean, Rocket out of the way. I mean, you know, it was just right uh, one thing after another before I started figuring out what actually an audio drama is. Yeah, it's a fascinating thing too with the with the learning curve there because with with like what shows people find that influence what they want to do. Um, uh, for me, I got I got hooked on Tonight Vale, and then Alice isn't dead, and then mm-hmm. I spent a little, little bit of time with Hello from the Magic Tavern, um, and about that point in my like understanding of the modern podcast audio drama, as opposed to you know the Garrison Keillor I was talking about earlier, or um, the uh, Lord of the Rings radio play that the BBC did in the eighties, which was my other major touchstone, um, a fantastic fantastic piece of work if you ever get the chance to listen to it much more loyal to the books than the movies anyway um but when i was when i tried to find shows to to um just to expose the different ways that you can accomplish audio drama i tend to look sort of at my level uh meaning shows that are independent shows that are trying to figure it out because there's much more likelihood for co-promotion first of all um Throw you throw a spot on my show. I'll throw a spot on your show, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, but it also sh- like it. It doesn't. I find that I'm less intimidated by the material. Like when I listen to the new Stitcher show, Marvels. Like that sounds like all the money that they put into it. And um, my friend Misha, who was uh, on the sound team for that, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, was, she also did. Um, uh, why why am I drawing a blank? You know, I listen to that fucking show. Bright Sessions. What's that? Bright Sessions, right? Bright Sessions, um, Ars Paradoxica, um, LeVar Burton, though that's less of a a great show, but that's not so much um scenic. They have another one in the Bright Sessions universe too, right? Um I forgot what it's called. I believe so. Bright Sessions was another early influence for me. Um but anyway, I try to look to shows them like, okay, cool. I know that you're not doing this. You didn't start doing this professionally at the very least. When you established the motif, the the creators came at it as just as visionaries and not as well financed necessarily. And that makes it easier for me to try to pick apart and try to learn uh, what their strategies were. That said, I've never been very good at – it is always a lot of work for me to keep – certain that the aspects of audio drama that are keep it easy or not easy simple 
uh, and streamlined have always been difficult for me to write. I'm much more interested in doing like, I want to have 10 people in a room and they all have different motivations. And it just, just isn't often feasible in audio drama. Um, you had mentioned uh, recent. You had mentioned earlier, and you, and um, also in your new episodes on season two, uh, your your um, your amazing um, uh, intro and uh, outro. Um, she she had mentioned the Shroud Universe. So mm-hmm. what is the Shroud Universe per se? Like what 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 when you say Shroud Universe, what what names, what things are we are we are we? I mean, clearly Baltimore, but what else is there for the Shroud Universe? <laughs> Um, the Shroud Universe is uh, it's uh, on, at the most basic level. It's standard urban fantasy, um, what I call uh, in the closet um, urban fantasy, which meaning there's a wor- there's normal people running around, and then just next to, beside, underneath, um, there's monsters and critters and knights and heroes and villains. Um, sometimes all at once. Um, so that's the, the sort of the basic level there. Um, I, I mean, probably the the two most identifiable examples of urban fantasy are um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Harry Potter. Um, they both theorize that they are here more or less uh, as uh, happening at the same time period as the uh, listener, viewer, or reader is uh, dealing with them, but it's. You know, there's there's another world beneath it and beside it. Um, I did something that I think is, I would I think is slightly different than what a lot of other urban fantasy authors have done. Um, I'm not using many of the traditional creepy crawlies. Um, the most traditional stuff that the, there's a running bit um, that I don't think has ever been addressed in the audio dramas, but there's a running bit in the prose that I've written in universe that we don't have elves and dwarves here. Um, mm-hmm. We're not talking about most most of the standard Dungeons and Dragons races um, or classes for that matter don't really have a place in my world. Um, there are some, and there's, there's plenty of mythological reference points that exist in you know, a true blood or as well as uh, the shroud universe. I mean, I've got satyrs, harpies, Titans. These are my, my guys. They're names that are recognizable enough that you go, Oh, right. That's related to a mythology. Um, But they don't necessarily spark as specific of a reference point, which gives me more pliability. Um, I can do more things with them and frame them the way I want to frame them. Um, which was always very important to me. I didn't really want to do. I, I, I've decided now that elves and dwarves will probably make their appearances specifically um, a little bit down the line, and I've got ideas for that. But w- I didn't want to start the show with a dependable race that the audience could go, "Oh, I know what that's about. What's his take?" Um, I wanted them to be thinking like, "What's his take on urban fantasy first? As opposed to what's his take on this specific creature, um, and the more that I've worked at it, the more that the universe has skewed towards religious satire, um, uh, and, and the more that I try to pull in biblical references, which is 
a little daunting because I still haven't read the Bible. And what I tend to, I, I do some research whenever I bring a new character or reference point in, but I tend to look to um, the Apocrypha um, and other sort of tangential bi biblical texts. Um, I, do, I oftentimes reference things from Paradise Lost or, um, oh, God damn it, what's the other one? Uh, Dante's Inferno or... Uh, the Book of Enoch had an enormous was an enormous influence on my work. Um, so yeah, so I, I, my point being that I wanted to blend in that mythology because it was useful to me and and fun for me to play with because I have profound respect for Christianity, but I wasn't raised with anything resembling Christianity, so I don't have to. It doesn't. It holds societal importance. And has uh, brand recognition, but isn't necessarily uh, something that's it doesn't it doesn't hold a lot the same potency for me that it does for a lot of people. Um, one of the realities of our world is that Jesus is a regular character. Um, he dies on a regular basis, goes to hell, and is resurrected all the time. And at this point in history, he's sort of this <laughs> jaded, drunken private detective. Um, his best friend since. You know, not long after uh, Caligula is Lucifer, um, so things like this, like that, that that held a lot of that sounded fun to me, and it wasn't personal enough to be dicey. So yeah, so I I, I really um I like involving mythology, and I count Christianity as just the most uh, recognizable of the mythologies, certainly in American culture. So yeah, so the, this started when you asked me about what the Shroud Universe is. Um, what the if if you want, I can do a very brief synopsis of the Genesis, and by that I mean like my rewriting of Genesis to match the Shroud mythology. Uh, is there any any? Uh, I mean, like, what is this? There's another show that is coming in the in the Shroud Universe. Oh, the other shows. Oh my god. Well, so that's a. The, the fast answer to that is that we've got a show called Arcane Highwaymen, uh, which focuses on one of the never heard but much heard of characters from Under the Shroud, uh, Will or Will DeBolt. Um, Speaking of Will, I, I'm he, so sorry. Yeah, go for Have it. we not heard him at all from season one or season two? Like, hear, heard, there's like heard him speak. No, he has or, not uh, spoken in any way, uh, shape or form in uh, as of yet. There is. Um, the first major, uh, work of, in the Shroud universe that I finished writing was a book called, um, of lunatics and degenerates that, uh, I is, I'm very, very proud of, and I'm looking forward to publishing someday, but Will is one of the three main characters and was arguably the first lead character that I came up with in universe. And I wasn't comfortable having somebody voice him, until I knew, A, what the show was really going to look like, and B, until I knew I had an actor that wasn't going anywhere, um, who could be relied upon to come back in whatever form I needed him. Um, and I finally found that in one of my uh, best friends and fans, uh, a kid named Mustang out of Salt Lake City, who is an inspiration all by himself. Um, and after an interview that we did that never really got aired, but we did, we did an interview together, and decided, I decided that I wanted to cast him as Will and put him in something. And so I wrote this little mini series 
that features Will seeking the lost rune. A mm. um, well, keep your ears peeled, and you'll find out more about that show down the line. Um, <laughs> but that's that's the first uh, side property that or spinoff property that I've really that we're really going to make happen. Uh, but I've also, I mean, I've developed uh, either a, at the very least uh, developed a, a full pitch deck and synopsis of I think five, five or six other shows now that would be set in the Shroud universe um, and written pilots and multiple episodes for at least three or four others. Um, yeah. Wow, you've been busy. <laughs> Well, yeah, but it, uh, in all fairness, a lot of those shows are at this point unproducible um, because of my inclination towards having – I like having labyrinthine plots. Um, I want a red herring to really hide who the killer was or you know, what's going to – I want everything to be a surprise and that's easier when you've got a lot of different people in the mix. Um, right. So yeah, so – I'm very, very proud of those shows. I plan to submit those scripts to anybody who will fucking read them and eventually get those shows made or rewrite them as prose. But in the interim, they're just kind of these other properties. And I've got – I actually feel terrible. We had one called Taste the Apple, um, which is probably the property I'm most proud of. Um, it was going to be a, um, a young woman uh, is elected the devil's advocate, uh, hell's representative on earth. And her guardian, uh, Joan of Arc, has to teach her the, the the sort of what life under the shroud is like, while also preparing her for a war with the current Devil's Advocate, who I imagine as sort of a James Spader leading a cult crime commune in the Appalachian Mountains. That's a drug empire, and you know it's sort of a King Arthur story, but it's also inherently about. Um, the nature of vice and the nature of uh, fr- uh, choice, and anyway, it was it was a really really beautiful property that I'm incredibly proud of. That has a cast in the first episode of like twenty people, um, and it's great. Um, again, I love that show, but until I can get better funding, it's not really feasible to produce it. Um, which right. is why I'm Story trying to. Right. Uh, that's why I'm trying to produce more more shows that are really, really from the get go. Um, simplicity is bound into the DNA of what the show is about, uh, like Arcane Highwaymen, which is essentially one guy by himself trying to prove that he's not the piece of sh- he doesn't have to be the piece of shit he always was mm. um, on a little quest for treasure. And and most of the show is built around him um, uh, sort of doing his cover on Corrin's Under the Shroud. Like he is trying to replicate that to a certain extent. So it's a lot of monologue um, or soliloquy rather. Um, and that was that that seemed like a, an effective approach to me. Um, and then like the next show that we've got – that I want to make is called the night in the racketeer. And even in that one, I managed to boil it down a bit. Um, and there's a lot more focus on just a partnership, uh, between two characters, the knight who is a mad time traveling sort of Baron Munchausen type and the racketeer who's a dirty cop, um, 
in the, a similar vein to uh, uh, the man with no name or uh, the character's name is Blondie, which is a direct reference to Clint Eastwood's man with no name trilogy. Um, <laughs> but also uh, f- uh, feminine and sort of maternal um, an interesting sort of way. So in that show, I think it's going to be really great, but again, it, has it's going to by nature have a larger cast which means that's something we need to put a little more on the back Mm -hmm. burner and try to develop slowly while pushing ahead these um these much more feasible shows um but i've also i mean i've also written let's see i've written two novels uh one just a rough and the other one a fairly edited novel that are the night uh christ errant books that follow the character of jesus through um texas getting into trouble and then there's a now that one sounds really interesting i'm gonna be funny <laughs> yeah i'm really proud of those they the the first one called turnaround um mm. is is i'm very proud of the work but it needs another edit uh the last time that i had i paid an editor a lot of money to go through and check it out and i have yet to really take a look at those notes because the overwhelming note was this feels hopeless uh these characters don't feel like people who are looking for redemption they feel like irredeemable people and that's not what i was going for and also by about the same time i got those notes uh we had just started our production on under the shroud and i just haven't had time to go back and look at it um yeah editor notes man it's great i mean they can be soul ripping that's for sure but you know in the long run i mean most of the oh, time, worth usually thankful for him. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I shouldn't have given him as rough of a draft as I did either. That's something I need to own. The main show, Under the Shroud. Um, your cast is fucking phenomenal. Like, and I mean, everybody from your uh, from your producers. I mean that. I mean, the cast on that show is crazy and not crazy. And I know you've had me come to you a few times over different people you work with from season one. I mean, they're they're hilarious. I mean, they do right. I mean, all of them. It's. I mean, where? How did? How, so some of these people you as mentioned you you brought back to your place to record. I mean, so what's it? I mean, meeting some of these people. How's how's that come about for this? <laughs> well, um, so one thing. So there's two uh, sort of two answers to that question. One is that the bulk of my actors, I'm just lucky um, that I've got such talented friends. I mean, everybody that I almost everybody that has been played a significant part or like a significant co-starring guest role um, on the show is somebody that was hangs out on the patio at the coffee shop I work at or is one of my coworkers at said coffee shop. Like that's almost all of them. Um, that's cool as shit. But it is. And it's just it's just been real lucky. Um and there have been times I obviously for people's pride I'm not gonna point them out, but there were times when like I had to, you know, change the part a little bit after the recording because they weren't didn't quite work out, or um a lot of times I, I like to record all my roles separately. I know a lot of audio dramatists like to do a group read. I prefer to get real tight with the person that I'm w- w- with the co uh, the the guest star. And work right. with them and then do my thing afterwards. Um, so I can – if somebody comes in and they give me a different performance than what I was looking for, whether it's not as energetic or it's super energetic and just in a direction I didn't perceive, I us- I always record them first and then I have them in my head while I'm doing Corin so that I know where to sort of fill in the holes and how to drive the energy of the episode. Um, but that said, a lot of it is a- have found is about – 
uh, making sure that at least one character per episode is a high energy caricature um, and just maintaining a, a distinct diversity of those caricatures. Because when I've asked people to come in and play somebody subtle, that's been a problem uh, because I'm not usually a, I'm not paying them. So they're not rehearsing ahead of time. Then they, and I'm, they, there's no way I could expect them to do so. Um, cause I don't have any fucking money. Um, <laughs> But B, they, I, I, I'll tell them what to, what I'm looking for and tell them to go big and then just keep pushing them to go bigger and bigger and bigger. And then we'll figure out whatever their version of that caricature is. Um, right. As opposed to, you know, there was um, – there just have been parts that I've had that I've like – I had, you know, something very specific in mind when I wrote this character and this actor um, – either can't do what I want specifically, which is then me not being malleable as a director and as a writer, <clears throat> or they just are too anxious with the mic to do something subtle. Um, and that's not on them. You know, we're not, nobody's, nobody's making a million bucks off this in my studio apartment. Uh, but it does mean that it's easier if they are playing somebody broad. Uh, one of my all time favorite characters, um, who oddly, uh, kind of ironically, is played by a guy who refuses to have his name attached to this in any way, shape, or form. A very good friend of mine who I will not name. Um, the Mad Scientist episode, um, and he voiced. Oh, I remember that one. That's the one with it. Was there? Wasn't? Didn't he have a sidekick or a, oh, yeah. a little no, kerny with him? They're the Frankenstein, Doctor Frankenstein, and Igor for sure. Um, and they're framed as like meth addict necrophiliacs, but they're like fun. <laughs> methodic necrophiliacs and uh and kind of sweet <laughs> um one thing that i've you'll generally speaking find in my characters is that most of them at some point or another has a genuine um interaction with corin that's usually speaks to some level of affection um pretty much no matter what and uh, you could say that's a weakness in my writing that i've kind of stuck on that trope but it also it's it's a fairly easy way to find redemption in a flawed character is like oh do you pity the junkie all right cool you're maybe not the worst person in the world um but anyway my my point just being that he was very anxious coming into the studio um about being able to pull off a, something this pull off some acting it'd been a long time since he'd been on stage or in front of a camera and because we both knew it was something weird he could just go in a direction with it. And as long as we stayed consistent within this, with the absurdism and let the writing take care of um, any vulnerability or uh, depth of character or, you know, cross motivation, then they could really be as far out there as they needed to. And that, that I found is very helpful. In your latest episode uh, and spoilers for anyone, there's obviously a scene with, with a cop. I honestly thought, like, I'm like, okay, so this episode's going to be with him and the cop. And that took a turn so quick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was, um, that was actually really cool. Um, the, um, Vince Dijani of How I Died, uh, was right. the voice of that cop. Um, a very talented actor. And it was really, really nice to bring him in to play this sort of, um, uh, hokey yokel who is at once, you know, like kind of ignorant 
but also like ultimately a good dude. And then it's one of very few moments when Corrin is just like kind of a dick to somebody for who doesn't deserve it at all. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, 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 I love that bit. <laughs> is there, is there a certain character um, maybe, um, and I understand if it's ones that's in the future that you can't talk about any, maybe you've already been released that that have kind of stuck to you. Um, not just from the actor view or actress view, but like, from the story wise, like uh, one any character that he's had in his cab, or anybody that's knocked him out halfway. <laughs> I mean, um, I guess I, I would say almost your favorite character, but in general, your character that 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 sticks to you that you, that's always on the back of your mind. Um, yes, uh, Miss Muriel, who uh, appears first in the episode um, True Believers. Uh, was an early addition to the Shroud universe, and I cannot say much about why, um, but I can tell you that she is um, everybody. She was a, a fan favorite for a long time. Um, uh, when I first started to meet and interact with people who were fans of the show who weren't friends of mine, um, mm. pe- they, everybody really, really clung to her. She's part of a church that... Um, that is aware that Jesus is a bit of a drunken prick, um, but they follow him anyway. He doesn't ask for them to follow him. He hates when they're around him. And the whole philosophy of the church boils down to, yeah, he's having a bad cu- couple of centuries, uh, but he'll come around. He's going to be okay. Oh, I remember listening to that one now. I remember that one. And um, It's all coming back to me now. Yeah. <laughs> and that was really important to me because – when you get right down to it, that though that duality is at the core of Christianity that usually gets ignored, which is uh, forgiveness and choice. Those are the basic values of Christianity. Um, and I loved that I could – I had already come up with the character of Jesus long before, but I loved this idea of these seemingly moronical folks who are just like blindly following this – you know, wasteoid of a former Messiah. Um, but then when you look at what they're really about, yeah, that's that's the deal. That's 100% the deal. If you are a true believer in Christ, in the Christian faith, then yeah, people make mistakes. They can still get better. And it's their decision to do so. Um, so anyway, um, the character of Miss Muriel is the uh, – she carries a machine gun with her, hidden in her jacket. She smokes pot, uh, but she's profoundly – My kind of lady. She's, she, yeah, <laughs> you know, right? But she's also, you know, like incredibly sweet. Um, she's much more uh, – this isn't so much related to the faith thing, but she's much, much smarter than she appears uh, at face value. Um, and, and she's ultimately – interested in redemption um and i i just fucking love that character uh i i remember when i was working on her um i had a lot of preconceived notions about the character she's been she's appeared in one form or another in a lot of the pros um and i was unsure of exactly what i wanted to do with her in the show um until i started talking to dana um Dana McKnight, sorry, I spaced on her last name for a second there. Uh, the actress who played her, my one of my the people who was my boss at my job. Um, 
And we started talking about where we wanted to go with the voice. And she gave me a little taste of what she was going to do. And it was the first time that I had taken what I considered to be a vast cultural liberty of writing to uh, to writing to the, the black urban experience and writing in that uh, lingo, which I still feel very uncomfortable doing in prose, but I really love doing in in script. Um, and it's and it feels weird at times, particularly when I've got a black actor in the or actress in the studio, uh, having that lingo that is not that I I, I it's not mine. But growing up in inner city Baltimore, I have a relationship with how it sounds, and then you know encouraging them to correct me where I'm wrong and to get the phrasing and the rhythm correctly. Um, it's just a wonderful experience. Anyway, so when I started to talk to Dana about what this character was going to sound like, and she mentioned her grandmother, who was has a very similar personality type, um, I r- really watched this character come alive in this fucking awesome way, and um, mm-hmm. and yeah, she's she's one of my go tos. Pretty much every single time that I write a new property, I make sure that Miss Muriel, in one shape or another, shows up in the pilot as sort of this establishing of like, this is the shroud universe. You know, she's one of the common threads. She's one of the strongest character types and she is a baseline of morality. Um, I'm not interested in writing a universe that has absolute good or evil at all. Um, as the more gray area, the better, but if there were to be an absolute good, it looks like Miss Muriel, somebody who is poor, somebody who is trying really fucking hard, and somebody who's putting the the um, the safety and health of other people, as well, as well as the spiritual health of other people, ahead of her own. Um, and so, yeah, so she anyway, she's very important to me, and I, I uh, it's it's a fascinating thing to care deeply for somebody that you've created and she's right, right the fuck up there at the top of the list for me. Okay. So we've, you know, we've dug deep into the shroud. We dug deep into, um, you know, the universe for it and the episode and, you know, and just in general, uh, you know, your, your influence stuff on it. But, but uh, to get back to you, um, what is your ultimate goal with, uh, where you're going with your creations as far as shroud, um, the podcast, the books, um, you know, in general, like what is your ultimate goal in life with, with what's your creation? Um, the, the, well, there's the career goal and there's, the, there's the creative goal. Um, get, let's get both start with the creation goal, the creation goal. Um, I really, really, I've got a couple of different beats that I want to hit in the, um, in the shroud universe that I want to lead up to correctly. Um, one of which is that I mentioned earlier that I wrote this book of lunatics and degenerates, um, which takes place at the start of a civil war between two of the races, uh, the harpies and the Titans and everybody's a piece of it. But at the core, that's what is happening is these two um, magical mythical uh, groups of creatures coming to a head and getting into all out warfare. Um, so I'm building towards that beat, um, which I figure will be a couple of different books. Um, and then after that, I want to do anyway, – I'm not going to go into the details because in order to do so would give a lot of sort of where my grand plans for this thing are headed. And right, what right. But I, there's, 
there is an ultimate story that I want to cover. Um, and I'm aiming towards finishing that. Um, but it's going to take probably, you know, until I'm old and gray. Um, I also want to, I want to show that you can, which is already being proven left and fucking right. The Marvel universe being a great example of this, um, both, uh, on paper and on the big screen or on the small screen for that matter. Um, I want to show that you, that one person can create a universe that is purely a setting on which you can lay a number of different genres of storytelling. Um, so for example, under the shroud is pretty much classic noir, structurally speaking. Um, there's a great quote. I think it's from Ross McDonald, uh, Laura Lippman, another Baltimore, uh, native references it a lot. Um, noir is when dreamers become schemers. Um, I often think about this, the ultimate noir super, uh, superpower is to continue to get beat and get beat and get beat and then still stand up again. And both of those play into who Corin is as a character. Um, he's mm. usually in the dark. Um, it's not so much about trying to solve a case as it is about trying to survive a case. Uh, but at its core, it's it's a noir story. And that's where I'm most comfortable as a writer, structurally speaking, is, you know, there's violence. We don't quite know what's happening. But by the end of the story, we'll have a, at least a better sense of it and some sense of re resolution. And the hero will make it through having accomplished some small act of good in the face of, you know, in seemingly insurmountable odds. But I also want to do other kinds of other genres, structurally speaking. Uh, there's a show that I um, developed but then never got – was able to produce called uh, Population Control that would have been a sitcom set inside the universe. Um, the characters are designed to be um, – to, to fit sort of the different archetypes that you find in, in Parks and Rec or The Office or Brooklyn Nine-Nine or whatever. Um, and it, it's, it's about sort of an overpopulation of pixies in the Shroud universe, but structurally it's set up as a workplace drama or a workplace uh, sitcom. And I want to make that because I want to show that, you know, you even though it's set up to be this noir universe, you can also do this thing. Um Eventually, I want to do a proper horror. Um, that one I'd mentioned about the young woman getting elect, uh, elected devil's advocate, that eventually would be genre structure-wise a true fantasy because it's about a hero coming from nothing and becoming uh, a, a mighty figure, um, similar to Star Wars or King Arthur or what have you. Um and that's that's my other sort of major creative goal is I want I want to create an expansive place and then show how many different kinds of story can be told within that place uh, while still progressing the, the the same beats of a store uh, beats of a larger story that I want to accomplish. I mean, the, the goal is to sort of break through to get to a point where. I'm in a room with people who acknowledge that I have a following and that my, my work is of value. 
Um, but what that looks like means so many different things. I mean, right now, the way I sort of imagine that line being crossed, which is seems so far away and sounds like it's much more impressive than it actually is, um, is to have any of my work be optioned for for uh, television or film. Um, that is not nearly as impressive as it sounds. It sounds like I'm saying, I want to make the next round of Marvel movies about my work. And that's not it at all. What it is is just somebody thinking it's worth whatever amount of money they assign to it that – that that for the possibility that they might make something down the line. Um, and that's my current career goal on top of moving into um, being able to take the Shroud universe out of just audio drama and put it into one other medium as well. Whether that's short film projects, which I have no idea how I'd ever be able to finance, uh, but that would be great, or it's starting to get books actually published in print and, you know, God help me, maybe even sold. And that's sort of the the, the level of uh, the next level of career advancement that I'm looking for. Um, but I, I just, again, the reason I really want to make sure to bring it up again was that for other creatives who may be listening, many of whom probably have much more intelligent things to say about all this than I do, but for those who might be, uh, you know, feel like they're just caught in tar or uh, can't just can't get their heads above water. I did not consider audio drama a possibility at all. And then somebody told me I should really give it a shot. And then I, you know, like I said, like there've been other factors that were leading towards that throughout my life, but I didn't think it would be a helpful uh, step. And then I took it and I invested a lot of time in it. And now there are people who know my work. And it gave me an experience of being out in public that I had never had before. So I just want to really recommend to any writers or creatives, just fucking find ways to get your work in front of people and really take risks and try weird things because you never know what's going right. to be the hook that breaks you through. Exactly. Um, so with that being said, uh, I want to hit you with some speed questions. Rock me. Rock me roll. Okay. If you could have a superpower, what would it be? Flight. Why flight? Oh, because I'm terrified of heights. And if that was no longer an issue, wouldn't that be fucking great? <laughs> Fair enough. Um, if you could live in a different country besides the U.S., where would you want to go? Oh, Scotland. Oh, why Scotland? Uh, because I'm pretty sure that most of my blood comes from there. I have a profound affection for bagpipes. And um, I ha I've always had that hankering to just like get to the top of whatever mountain is in front of me and right of all the mountains that I've ever seen in uh film or photograph. Those are the ones where I'm always like, Oh, I need to get, I need to surmount that enormous phallus monument. All right. Uh, and the last one, if you could have some hope for the future of the world, where it could go from here, um, you know, obviously we have not just the coronavirus, but I mean, it seems to be that everyone's on the brink of hating someone in this political uh, campaign. I mean, it's just 2020 has not been the year that everyone everyone expected to do. But but what do you hope uh, comes out of 2020? What do you want the um, not just the U.S., but the world to to maybe change and, and get a better view on? Oh, global warming. I think that the I think that the the issues that we are dealing with across the board 
Um, some of them I actually find more like anger me more than global warming, but none of the rest right. of them really matter compared to global warming. Um, because as much as I fucking hate racism, sexism, uh, homophobia, um, more than any of those at all, like the, the uh, class war drives me fucking crazy. The fact that addicts aren't considered um, a disenfranchised people in the same way that other uh, other disenfranchised folks are. These things all make me viscerally angry and none of them matter at all if we're all dead. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. I just I would rather that, you know, like uh, I would rather that we had Biden as president. And and this is like I'm not trying to be a dick here, but I rather, would rather we had Biden. Fuck, I'd rather we had Trump as president and like something happened and he had to solve global warming and he was allowed to be as fucking terrible as he wants, because at least we can fight about it for more years. But we can't fight about it any longer if global warming isn't addressed. So, yeah, I really I don't mean to be insensitive to the other hardships in the world, but they kind of don't matter if we're not around to argue about them. And I would really like to keep arguing about life. It's my favorite thing. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, like if you want to, if you want to get into an argument about it, find me on Twitter. Cause I would love to argue about it, but, but I that's cause I love the argument. I love the conversation. One of the most important, uh, Probably the most important moment for me in college was in a class that I barely paid attention to after the first day uh, because it really was just sort of a the most basic level of uh, of of making an argument with text. Uh, it was called Academic Writing as Conversation, I believe. And the opening speech that the teacher gave, she was this elderly, sweet woman. I ended up writing a short story about her many years later. Um but what she was talking about in that opening uh, welcome to class routine was about how every time that you write anything and share it with anyone, you are entering the conversation. Um, even if what you say is categorically wrong, it might be the thing that helps somebody else better define their argument that might be more accurate or less accurate. And then that, that, you know, helps somebody else better define their point and on and on and on and on and on. And that conversation, which I don't think is limited to academic writing. I think it exists very much in uh, fiction as well. That conversation that's been happening since we first figured out, you know, the, the most elemental basics of language around a fire is, is just the most important thing for me. I mean, that that's, that's how magic happens. Magic happens through the development of language and the utilization of it, um, through science or belief. And we can't keep having those conversations if we don't have air to breathe. And, um, and I'll pick a fight with anybody any day of the week about it. Uh, uh, uh you know what? I can get behind that. I can fully get behind that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> 
so to close to close the episode out, um, I'm going to ask you a question that that we have we've you know uh, we've begun um, asking the guests since since the beginning. Um, if you could give personal advice to um, someone who's who you know maybe in your shoes as someone someone who's possibly working at a coffee shop or working at a at a, a job to to keep their feet on the ground um, and they're they're looking to start something creative, whether it's a podcast or a book or or in general, like you know, put their creation out there. Uh, what 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 could you give this person on a personal level? Um, so there's two answers to that question. The the first one is the easy one that you're, you've already heard, um, which is whatever you're doing, do it every day. Particularly writing. Um, I'm not gonna say that writing is sacred in any way. That it, it's just that we all use language all the time, so the expectation for a writer is a little different. Um, so you do really have to apply yourself to the blank page every day but you already knew that um the more important thing is that whatever you also do whatever your day job is whatever whatever you have to do with your life to get by apply yourself to that too you get good at getting good at things by applying yourself and i cannot tell you how frustrating it is and yet predictable it is when you work particularly in the service industry well i guess it's just the service industry for me because that's where uh, my career has always been um and you're working with somebody who says things like oh i'm gonna make a movie oh i'm gonna write a book oh i'm gonna whatever and then you watch them slack off on that job and i'm well aware that there are probably a million stand-up comedians who would just laugh me off the stage about this one but i genuinely think that if you are going to be good at anything, you've got to at least try at everything you have to do. That's how you learn to excel is by applying yourself wherever called for. Um, that's the biggest piece of advice I have. And I can tell you right now that I wasn't a good writer until I figured out that there weren't – I couldn't you know, just – sort of bounce my way through the rest of life. And f anyway, also you're going to be happier. You're just going to be a happier person. If you don't, if you ha don't have ass things, dude, this was fucking tits. This was one of my favorite. This, I think this was some of the best material I've ever put out on in an interview. And you really pulled it out of me wonderfully. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, let's do it again sometime. Really? Oh, for sure. This episode features Ian Humphrey from the Under the Shroud podcast. You can find more from Ian at undertheshroud.com. Further contact information listed in the show notes. Want more podcasts like Personalized? You can go to gravityundone.net to find other podcasts such as Space Brains, Exit Plan, and My Creativity. And we would really appreciate if you followed Personalized on social media, as well as sharing with us your favorite guests and your favorite episodes. And also, if you want to leave us a review on platforms such as Apple Podcasts and Podchaser. Thanks for listening. Should introduce myself. Um, I'm Corin Black, a humble half demon. Folks around Baltimore call me the Devil's Runt.
Here we go. Finally moving again. How do you feel about methamphetamines? You know, devil's blood don't make you a devil. Under the Shroud. Fantasy, noir, and horror from Baltimore's sin-soaked streets. Find creator Ian Humphrey on Twitter at fictionalian.